welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potzagire, your host, an artist and educator. Mike Windy, aka Mike Mitchell, talked about his winding path to art education and the myth of the art professor with abundant studio time. He shared how he fits in studio time in the gaps and how rich and fulfilling this winding path has been. Mike also shared a project he does with students that provides really useful data for teachers in assessing student learning also offers data to administrators while letting students see their own growth. He talked about thinking in similar ways within his own studio practice to shift to a growth mindset as an artist. I loved the idea of differentiating for yourself, realizing that you can't be fantastic at everything and recognizing your own growth as an artist. I also loved the mindset shift from I'm not good at art, to I've been underserved as an artist. Thanks, Mike, for that new way to respond to the ever-present, but I can't draw, I'm not an artist, which I hear from students, parents, fellow teachers, you know, everyone. (laughs) Mike also shared many artists he admires and loves to share with students. I'll link to their work in the blog post, so go check that out. And this is a good reminder that I do share a blog post with every episode, which includes images and links. Mike Windy, aka Mike Mitchell, is a Cohort 3 member of the Educators Cooperative and the Kids on Stage Art Director of Mount Pleasant Schools in Maury County, Tennessee. He is a 2020 Makey Makey Global Ambassador and the 2022 Mid-Region Educator of the Year awarded by the Tennessee Art Education Association. Congratulations, Mike. He also hosts the Art of Outreach podcast with the Tennessee Art Association, which you should absolutely go check out. I will link to that as well. Let's hear from Mike. I am talking with Michael Mitchell, aka Mike Windy, and I'm excited to hear more of your story, your teaching, and your art making, and how they you know, overlap or come together. I always like to start with that journey. How did you get into both of those things, teaching and art making? Well, thanks for, it's a real honor to be here. I'm a listener first of your podcast. And so I'm really excited. I've sent people your way to both mm-hmm. listen and encourage you to, hey, this person might be someone you might want to interview. I just just love what you're up to. So thank you. For me, it never occurred to me that I would be in the K-12 space teaching art. Once I decided I was going to go to school for art, which was its own long process, you know, as a kid, I didn't know anybody who I knew artists existed. I just didn't know anyone in my family or in my immediate kind of sphere. I went to a a math and science magnet school in Nashville, which is Mm. uh, okay. Magnet science, which is a a school that I love. And my son now goes to that school in Nashville. It's a really great, one of the great public schools in America. And at the time I was there when it was being invented. And so it wasn't Ooh. quite 
the school it is now, right? Like I always tease people and say, there's no way I could get in now. I was the guinea pig <laughs> for how that school became invented, but it was really awesome experience to like look back on and see. But so I was at MLK mm-hmm. thinking math and science and then went to a little small Christian school because I got encouraged to play basketball there because I was a very good basketball player in high school and didn't really want to follow that path. I really at that time knew that I wanted to make paintings. I'd started painting, mm. I started making sculpture, but again, there was just no spot. So this really cool guy named Peter Nash, who lives in Nashville, who's a photographer, my wife, Wendy, was um, working for Peter and Laura as their nanny. And Peter saw some work I did and was like, wow, this is great. What's your story? And I told him and he was like, why aren't you in art school? And it was really the first time an adult who I only met kind of as an adult who Mm. asked that question. I kind of was like, I don't don't know. I'm not in art school. He was like, you should, he's like, you need to, he's like, if you want to do that, that's fine. But like, if you want to make art, you know, you can go to school for it. And so Mm -hmm. it was through um, his mentorship and um, encouragement. And then Wendy, of course, was like, yeah. So I, I came back from Texas that next year and immediately enrolled at Volunteer State Community College, which was just up the road from where I lived in Nashville and started going to art school. So, and then from there I thought, oh, well, I like what these professors are up to. I want to do that. That mm-hmm. seemed like a real cool thing. And so I was then went through undergrad and then grad school and wanted to be, you know, a professor and then kind of came up against the the reality of just how tough it is to get that job. And then also how not all, but many of the professors who I was encountering either hated where they lived, right. But Mm -hmm. liked making work or loved where they lived or were unhappy in some other way. And I was like, Hmm, maybe I should reconsider this and found myself in, you know, when I was 29, realized I had been in a brick block building where the walls had been painted white or beige for 25 straight years (laughs) and started to have that kind of fluorescent Brick block institutional kind of overload of like, this isn't mm. fun. Like, I should be having a blast. I'm in graduate school for sculpture. Why am I not having more fun? And I remember mm. it was a real crisis of faith of like, this is supposed to be exciting and fun and I'm grumpy. And so my wife and I took a year off after grad school. We moved to Florida and lived on the beach, both got jobs and thought, you know, if we want to move away from that and chase a job becoming an adjunct professor somewhere and building the resume to get a full-time professor position, then that's a good litmus test to move away from mm-hmm. St. Augustine Beach. We moved, but we just moved about 15 miles inland. And through a really kind of interesting series of events, I, I became the um, director of a 21st century community learning center, which was a department of education grant that often was used either in urban areas and in rural areas. And we were in a little town of about 600 people. And so we got that grant through a program called Communities and Schools, and I got hired to be the program director. And we had a food bank and clothing pantry that mainly served migrant farm workers on our property. And then we just grew that into a full wraparound services from domestic violence assistance to mental health assistance to the food bank and clothing pantry to running a full series of arts classes for about 60 kids a day um, year round and I did that for about three years and that was with no certification right I had my master's degree but like an MFA but because it was an after-school program you know there are some great heroes in this world in education that we never think of and it's those men and women who are running before school programs and after school programs who totally. don't have their K-12 certification, but are in fact the heart of education. 
And, mm-hmm. and so I did that. And then at the time, I also started, do you remember that movie, Ben John Malkovich, where he yeah. would always go through the thing and look for puppeteer in the classifieds? Uh-huh. Well, in the St. Augustine record, I was working construction. This was a little bit before I ran the after school program, but I was working construction and I was looking through the classifieds and there was an ad and it said, sculpture professor needed Flagler College MFA required. And I told Wendy, I was like, like, I was like, this is like being John Malkovich. This has never been in the newspaper before. No one's ever run this ad. Right. So I got, (laughs) I reached out to him and I got that adjunct position. So I taught sculpture one at Flagler College for about three years concurrently with running that after school program. And then eventually moved back to Tennessee, to Nashville, and then got hired to teach elementary school art because I realized I needed to make more money than I was making. I was working on a farm. I was teaching adjunct classes at two different schools and thought, well, maybe I'll try this. And again, a weird situation. There was an opening at the elementary school that my wife went to as a kid. And I Mm -hmm. went and met the principal there who knew my mother-in-law from working out at the YMCA. He and he and his daughter and I went to the same high school. And he said, listen, you know, it's kind of a weird thing, but there is this transitional license possibility that you could do that where if a principal hires you, the Tennessee Department of Education will allow you to then over a three-year period get your certification. So Mm -hmm. that's a long answer to that, how I arrived at that. Yeah, no. And I love hearing, you know, people ask me that question and I'm like, well, do you have time for this? (laughs) It's pretty windy. (laughs) Yeah, Especially for people who I know who teach, who also went the academic route, it's almost Mm -hmm. never like, well, I got my MFA and then decided to be a K-12 art teacher. Right. Yeah. Most people that go kind of straight into teaching went Mm -hmm. to school for teaching. Right. And yeah, I totally relate to that whole journey of like, ooh, being a professor sounds cool. Let's Mm -hmm. try that. And then Mm -hmm. being just smacked in the face with the reality of that. Yeah. Like, well, nope, it's hard to get a job that's actually going to pay the bills, you're probably going to be juggling like three of them plus another job <laughs> that helps pay Rebecca, the bills. When I, was in, <laughs> when I was in Florida, I counted, and I might be wrong, but I guarantee you I'm within four or five positions. But when I was in Florida in 2001, I looked and there were like 12 full-time positions in the entire state. Yeah. You know, that's, from, that's from the Keys to Jacksonville mm-hmm. over to Tallahassee, you know, right. in the entire state of Florida. Mm -hmm. in which there are several universities just in that one state that are pushing out more than qualified employees, future employees, just that state times the other 49 states who are also pushing out, plus international artists who are moving to the states. Like the, the competition is just, I only recently started realizing my friend Beth and I were talking and we talked about a job that we both had applied for in the last three or four years And she didn't get it either. And I was like, oh, I've been thinking about this wrong. Like, I'm in really good company. Like, (laughs) like Beth Breitmeier is one of the best living artists that I know. And she Mm -hmm. didn't get the job. Like, what am I worried about? She's way more qualified than I am. Like, of course I didn't get that job. If she didn't get the job, of course I didn't get the job. It was very interesting. It was kind of like cathartic to understand, oh, yeah, I'm not the only one who thinks they're qualified and has a terminal degree and has a ton of experience. And there's only 12 people getting those jobs. And by the way, those jobs aren't all open at the same time, right? One right. of them occasionally will open up here and there. And so it just reminded me, you know, my son played baseball for like one season. And I heard the coach say, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. 
And it was really one of the most important things I ever heard. Yeah, like absolutely. To myself to go like, right, I'm not lesser than just because I didn't get the University of Florida position or the whatever other 50 positions I've applied to in my, <laughs> my life. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And then for me, it felt like there was this sort of journey and there was, you know, that disappointment of, well, I guess maybe I'm not going to, like, I had this whole idea in my head that I'll go to school, I'll be a professor. And then when that shifts, there's, I don't know, maybe a time period where you're kind of like, oh, man, that didn't work out. But then for me, there's been this sort of realization that it all kind of makes sense somehow. It all, it led me to where I am. And working with kids has actually been incredible for, you know, more than just teaching, but for my art practice as well. I don't know if you found any of that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And yeah, I mean, I think the, that what you just said will be yet another one of those things to remind me to be so grateful for mm-hmm. where all of those, what I perceived as were failures, but instead were, well, that's just not where you're going to be. You're going to be here. And the gratefulness to like, if I had gotten one of those things, well, you and I wouldn't be talking. That's just one of the mm-hmm. many outcomes of if I would have gotten one of those early positions that I, I, it also means I wouldn't have met the incredible kids that I'm now getting to work with on the Mount Pleasant campus, pre-K through 12. And once I think one thing that's really interesting, and I tell kids this all the time, I told a kid the other day who was working on a motorcycle, it's really cool, this build he was doing. Um, He's in our ag class, but he's really making something that felt like sculpture. But I did remind him, and this kind of goes back to what you're saying, like, once you meet kids, I said, hey, man, I really don't feel comfortable living in a world that you're not in. Be careful Mm -hmm. on that motorcycle. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, totally. Once you meet the, like, if you could go back and say, Hey Mike, you know, you can, any of those positions you applied for, you could, you could go work there. I I can't undo knowing the kids that I've gotten to teach Mm -hmm. because of this completely unexpected turn of events where I taught at that after school program. Mm -hmm. Right. And then from there, I got to teach a side gig at Flagler College. So I, I never would have done that adjunct role. I never would have gotten to meet Leslie Robinson, who's the now the, I think, a dean in that school, and Laura Mongevi, who's the sculpture professor. Like, I never would have met them. I never would have met Patrick Moser, who's also a teacher there. And I don't want to not know those folks. And so it is interesting to remind yourself, oh, I'm so grateful for Though this path is unexpected and one I could not have perceived, like my brain's not complicated enough to have perceived all the little areas where I didn't go. It's like, I do feel really more comfortable in my skin than I ever have professionally in this space that I never could have imagined being in, you know, Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, you know, there's about 5,000 people here. It's 68 miles from my house, but I feel like really at home getting to be the kids on stage art director in this little community. And then how that all of those things, how that then impacts, you know, when you get out of school and, and to me, whether it's undergraduate school or graduate school, or even if you just find yourself in a really rich studio practice, you know, you think about making work that's going to be like kind of in the quote, all caps art world, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm making work because I'm people who also have their degrees or who also think about art deeply, like this work is going to be in this kind of gallery mindset that I had when I saw the first art gallery when I was in. And it's like, that's not how anyone looks. And so, but it makes so much sense because like, that's also not how my professional path has taken. So of course, the way that my work gets shown and seen, it happens in a much more kind of organic and I would argue like richer and more lovely way. 
because kids see it when they peek into my office because I'm here a lot and oftentimes have to stay late. So there are these gap hour and a half, 30 minutes, 40 minutes that I've, I've gotten good at in my career of taking those little 30 minute pieces here and there, as opposed to that kind of like eight hour studio time that I thought I would get, mm. you know, on Fridays, because I'm going to be a tenured faculty member and have this incredible space. And by right. the way, I also know professors out there who are working full time also don't necessarily have that dream either. The, 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 yeah. All of that is kind of like a myth, you know, that we've kind of invented around what it means to make art and what it means to teach art and what it means to be in an art ecosystem. It's been interesting that, you know, my head slowly, slowly is kind of getting around to how lovely it is just to be working and getting to have that be my life, that art gets to be a central part about my life. And just because it doesn't look like any movie that I've ever seen or any TV show, it doesn't mean it's not just as awesome as this. Right. Yeah. I love that sort of realization that it is all sort of a myth. It's not it's not reality and, and realizing that the reality is so much richer in a lot of ways. If I could go back and whisper something to my younger self, it would be whatever is happening, enjoy that. And it is what, like, it is real. It's not mm-hmm. lesser than something that's happening in a city. It's not lesser than something that's happening in a magazine. It is real and rich and valuable. And that's the key mm. is like, well, if you're having a conversation with someone, you don't need to be measuring them up to like wonder if their opinion's valuable based on where they went to school. Their opinion valuable because they're a fellow human who's engaging within the work that you're making, whether that's your teaching practice or your your art practice. Like that's a valuable thing. And I think that we in that myth, as I bought into it, I would just worry about that stuff way too much. Hmm. You know, and I also spent way too much time worrying about who wasn't paying attention to my work. Hmm. Like this vast group that I thought would, as opposed to like, you know, there might be 50 people who are paying close attention to my work. That's a lot of people. Like that would fill up my house. That's too many people to have in my house. That's 50 people, 50 people who, you know, who have plenty of stuff to do in a world full of social media that that 50 people, like I'm starting to understand how much pride I should be taking into the fact that anyone's paying attention to my work when they could be paying attention to yours or my friend Jody's or my friend Omari's or Marlos or Nuveen's or like any of those artists and they're paying attention to my work, even if in small mm-hmm. seconds here and there on Instagram, it's a wonder and a delight. And I'm like, again, just kind of finally getting my head around kind of the appreciation and the gratefulness I have. Mm. Like, wow, this is awesome that, yeah. that anyone cares. Yeah. I love that idea of picturing, you know, look at, for instance, your followers on Instagram right. and picture that number of people actually present in your yeah. home. That's a great way to just right. if, visualize if many, it. If that many people came to your art opening, they'd be like, front page Whoa. news, Rebecca Potts has an art opening <laughs> with this many people. Like they, they had to do it in shifts. Right. But because again, comparison is the thief of joy because it's not in the millions or the thousands, right? Mm-hmm. I'm starting to understand that and really kind of relish the idea of having like, because I do love Instagram. I tell students that I work with all the time, look, I'm not an adult who's going to demonize that. I'm addicted to it just like you. I love getting mm-hmm. those likes. I, I actually, it really fits my brain in a way that I, I probably should get a better handle on, you know, but I love it. But I do mm-hmm. love it because it. I do remember being 19 and nobody taking me seriously and nobody painting me my work. And also I just didn't have any tools to figure out how to do that. So I really do love that, you know, there's this guy from Atlanta who's making really cool sculpture who will pop in and go like, man, I love this. I actually really love that because it is super valuable to me to know that there's someone else out there who understands this, 
you know, pretty peculiar way that you and I decide to spend our lives, which is, you know, Peter Sheldahl says this great thing. I saw him speak at University of Memphis and he said, you know, artists are essentially, you know, egomaniacs because they say the world's not perfect yet until this thing that I put into it, right? Like, like there's all this, there's all this incredible work that exists in the world in these buildings. And we're like, I could do better. You know, I can add something that's needed. So the idea that somebody who also understands that know how hard it is to, to make work, to make time Mm -hmm. to make work inside of all the things that we balance as, Mm -hmm. as people that they would stop what they're doing to send me a little note to say, Oh, I really like that piece. I really value that. And the, the fact that that happens, you know, again, like 40 or 50 people are doing that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. I, had, I never had that at an exhibit. Right. Yeah. That's a it. great way to think about it too. And I'm curious if you bring that to your students, like the two big sort of ideas I'm hearing are this idea of gratitude, but also valuing your voice and valuing the experiences that you've had and valuing hearing from anyone else's voice about your work, sort of that a critic doesn't have to be, you know, a writer for Brooklyn Rail or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The other thing about that is I also love those folks too, right? Like I think a lot of times people can maybe perceive that as that, oh, I want to undo that. Oh no, I loved getting to go to Manhattan and going to galleries and go to Brooklyn and you know, I got invited by my friend um, Virginia Overton to to help her run a workshop at um, Storm King, and it was mm-hmm. not lost on me that I got paid to be at one of the most kind of important places in the U.S. for sculpture. Mm-hmm. I loved that, and that when yeah. I was there, I wasn't like, "Oh, this is gross." I was like, "This is amazing. I would love to come back." You know, so I loved that part of it. I also just it, it was this awakening to realize that's not the only part. Right. Mm-hmm. But that what I did there wasn't more important than as what you're saying is working with a student this past week. I was showing them how to do quilling and how, you know, there's this really cool thing that women in the 15th century invented as a way to approximate these other things that they couldn't do. But they didn't want to they didn't let that stop them just because they didn't have mm-hmm. the cash to get the metal work done. They're like, oh, we'll figure that out. So they you know, did all the little paperwork and then painted it and it looked just like it. And then it's lasted for this long. And so I'm showing them that work. That's not less important than me being on Storm King mm-hmm. property. It wasn't like, oh, well, I did this little thing with a kid. No, that I would argue is as important, if not more, was to have a students being able to, to work with them and see them understand how hard this thing is to do, but then be excited to then share it with me and go like, oh, I figured this out or this is kind of like scrapbooking with my grandma and and me didn't see me get excited as like a guy. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We underestimate that stuff. That stuff is art. That's making, that's Mm -hmm. using stuff to tell stories that gets underestimated in our communities. That's why you're, you know, maybe that's why you like this. That's why you're good at it because you've been working with your hands. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that that's for me a way in which all of that kind of understanding how connected all of those things are and that they're not separate. Right. Getting mm-hmm. to show in a gallery is not that separate from getting to have a conversation with a student who is learning how to draw their hand kind of realistically. And then how that's also then not the only way to draw your hand. I just want to show you you can do it. And then that also means you can also, you know, I use the I was telling them that my mom went back to school in her 40s and to be a nurse. And I was like, I don't mm-hmm. whether you become an artist or not that's actually of less interest to me than the idea of understanding that our brains have the ability to be elastic 
and that mm-hmm. we can do anything that we're willing to work hard to do. And drawing's a perfect way to break through that with students is because most of them think there's no way they could draw their hand where it looks like their hand. And so that, to me, was a really kind of lovely experience. And again, that just stacks up and just reminds me of how important all of it is. And again, just because it doesn't look like when I was in grad school, there was never a class about, you know, one day you'll have a really great conversation with a 15 year old about drawing and it'll move tears. Right. Like that Mm. just wasn't something that was part of what I thought I was going to do. And of course, I would never change that for any exhibit. You could offer me any exhibit to say, hey, you can have this exhibit, but you can't work with kids anymore. I'm, I'm not mm. going to take that trade ever right. because those students, seeing those kids' ability um, or seeing their understanding of, oh, I have access into this world that I didn't think I had access into mm. because I thought all drawers that a god or the gods or whoever the deity that they would believe in touched their arm in such a way, and that's just the only way they could do it. Mm-hmm. Not, oh, you can actually work your way through this and you can actually work really, really, really hard and get good at it, regardless yeah. of what your kind of natural or innate abilities may be. And that part is really, really cool to just see kids kind of shocked and go like, I don't understand. You know, it almost feels like a parlor trick to them. Like, how did you do that? And it's <laughs> like the magic. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, that times everything, right? Like mm-hmm. everything that your teachers are telling you about any given subject is you can get better at it. You can kind of grow it. But if you have this set kind of locked in, again, going back to that myth, if you have this myth about yourself that, well, no wonder my family's good at math and I'm not good at math, Mm. that then you're locked into that. You know, teachers will say, you know, kids not only meet, but they exceed expectations. And if you, if a kid says they're not good at math, not only will they not be good at math, they'll be poor Mm because they will meet and then exceed that expectation. So it's fun to show them something that they think is really hard. And it is hard to draw hands, but just to show them that they can get radically better between the first and second drawing. And then I have them do 10 over the course of the semester. And then the Mm -hmm. 10th one just looks wildly different. Even if it's not, you know, I I don't get worried about whether it actually looks exactly like it. I just want to show them the growth of like, oh, they can then admit, oh, if I kept doing this over a long period of time, yeah, I would get it. I would get to it. And some of them will continue and some of them won't, but it almost never misses the mark from a standpoint of them understanding, I see where you're going with this, Mr. Mitchell. I can work hard and get better at almost any Mm -hmm. relationship. I love that way of teaching and really letting them visualize that growth into the teaching nitty gritty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is that sort of a project that's an ongoing project through a semester or a year where Mm -hmm. You're like every every month we're going to draw a hand or whatever it is, but yeah. interspersed with all the other projects. Yeah. So right now my role, I'm not a I'm not a day to day classroom teacher, but when I mm-hmm. when I I'm actually covering a class right now where I'll be in the classroom a little bit more. But when I am in a space where I'm working with kids, yeah, because that work is so hard, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if they have been misserved as an artist, you know, and people will say, I can't draw. And I I usually say, no, you've just been ill served as an artist, right? Like Mm -hmm. everyone can draw. Yeah. Every single person that has um, the ability to move their body, right. They can draw, right. Even kids who I've worked with who have, you know, kind of severe obstacles, either um, emotionally or physically in their lives, we'll figure out a way for you to make a mark. Mm Mm-hmm. So everyone can draw or drag something across to make marks. And so, yeah, but because it is tough work, I also don't like to turn kids off to this idea 
And yeah, we kind of start, I do a first assessment and then we look at that and then they do a tutorial usually on YouTube because I like to show them like, you really don't need me, right? Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, I can be a guide and I can be a resource. I can be a sounding board, right? Like, like to go ahead and build that into their their thinking process of like, yeah, find mentors in your life that can point you in the ways, but also do your own work to get better. Mm-hmm. It's that, that's just kind of a subtle underlying message I like to send. If I'm doing high school, middle school, I would do it a little different. In elementary, of course, I would do it even differently. But for high mm-hmm. school, I like to send that message of, yeah, this is work you're going to do. But yeah, I, I do stretch it out over the course of the, the semester because, because as you can imagine, it helps it feel, you know, a little bit longer. It helps it feel a little stretched out. It also helps it feel a little bit more epic. Like they mm-hmm. did work harder than maybe they really did, if that makes sense. So yeah. from a marketing standpoint, it helps the idea of like, oh, things, it is hard. Even though you could probably sit there and make 25 kids do that in a two-week period and get mm-hmm. a lot of really good results if you were just looking at the end result of how good the hands are. But yeah, right. you, you use a lot of the kind of what I have found the social emotional value of what mm-hmm. you can learn through that process if you just stretch it out a little bit. And, and then mm-hmm. the big thing I always try to encourage other art teachers specifically with that project is it's a really, you know, if you're in a system where you're being evaluated on some sort of, in, in Tennessee, we use the team evaluation. And so, you know, mm-hmm. an administrator would come in, see what you're up to, and then you would get scored. One of the things that art teachers, visual and performing arts teachers can often get a lower score on is when you get to the spot about data. Like how are you using mm-hmm. data to determine what you're going to teach next? And so I actually worked with my administrators when I taught at Father Ryan, which is a Catholic school in Nashville. I actually worked with them and had this really cool collaborative conversation about how that project actually yields data. So you would draw your first hand, I would score it on a one to four, five level. And then I right. would keep track. And then I, the kid would not get a one or a five. I shared with the student where they were, in my opinion, uh, and then they scored themselves on a one to five because then they had their own growth, right, that they were doing because that was what was important mm-hmm. to me. But if their hand was a two, so they'd been misserved as an artist, as a 10th grader, and they couldn't draw as well as they'd want to draw it, they would still get some flavor of an A on that assignment as long as they had followed and worked hard, spent the amount of time. You know, I do a timer and say, look, draw for five minutes. I don't care if you're just eventually just kind of doodling your way through, but I I need your pencil moving. Like you need to build the capacity to move that pencil around. You have to grow your ability to pay attention. Part of it is just moving your pencil. And then the next one, we move to seven and then nine and then 10. And eventually that last one, you know, they're those last five, they're drawing for 30 plus minutes. And then eventually they're drawing for as long as they need to. Some of those kids would draw Mm -hmm. for an hour, you know? Yeah. And then they would take it home and they would draw more. But so we would just grow it. But what you're able to do is where administrators who don't have our background could understand you were able to really pull data. Hey, I moved a kid from a mm-hmm. one and you can see what that one looked like. And I yeah. can explain to you what a one is. A one is a hand that isn't in the shape of this student's hand at all. It mm-hmm. doesn't have the right amount of digits, the proportions. Like you can, they can go like, oh, I get it. That is a one. And then you can show them how <laughs> right. you move it. Well, they're now at a four. And then you could say, well, I moved 25 kids. Or in my case, I was moving 100 kids because I taught or 80 kids, because I taught all art one, I could say, hey, I'm moving 80 kids, an average of three points of data, right? Yeah. Or, or and and then you huge. Could, and, and then the, they would be like, whoa, well, then well, right. what, is, what is that going to do? Well, I'm going to use that to push my next, you know, what I learned from that data was, and, and again, this was real stuff that I got, I was actually quite good at moving kids from a one or a two, like two full points. 
Mm-hmm. And what I wasn't as good at, which I still will work on and work on for the rest of my career, as I'm not as good at moving a kid who's at a four right. to somewhere higher. Yeah. Like that's yeah, that part. That's, I'm like, okay, that's so, the hard one. Mm-hmm, that's <laughs> the subtle part, right? And so, mm-hmm. and then part of it is too, then that system can break down because then if they move to a four, there's only one point they can move to, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then, and then a, a really great thing happened this, this last week because I taught that, or two weeks ago, a kid, Rebecca, I promise you, the drawing was for a freshman, you know, and, and we talked about it because he actually let me talk about it. I was real conscientious about it, but he was just didn't have any qualms about it. He's like, that's terrible. He's like, it's not a very good <laughs> oh. one. And I didn't think that it actually is really cool. Like his style's cool, but it was not, if we're talking about realistically rendering his hand, it was like a 0.5. And mm-hmm. within one setting, within a 30 minute period, he moved like to like a 2.5. In just 15 minutes. And I'm like, right. you broke my scale. Like, I'm going to have to figure out a whole new way of like, because if you draw, you, by the time you draw 10, they're like, you'll just, you, you're you going to be off the scale. So that was really great. But it was, it was really cool because kids literally, their draw job, because when I showed it, they were like, it was hard because it was like, kind of funny looking in their head. And then I showed them the next one and they literally, like, a couple kids were like, oh my goodness, wow. Like, that's wild. So, so anyway, that one's a, I also do projects that don't have anything to do with that and have none of those kinds of structures where it's way more wide open and mm-hmm. performative based. And, you know, so I always encourage teachers. It's like, hey, this is just one way of doing if you need data. This is a really cool thing that I like to do for like mm-hmm. art one classes or fifth, sixth, seventh grade classes for if you're going to do observational drawing. I have found it's kind of a cool way. You get the lights really low. You put some you know, lights on or they'll let them use their cell phone to light their hands. So it gets real dramatic lighting when you start doing shit. Yeah. It's just, there's a lot of cool possibilities to that, that assignment. Mm. But if you, did, if you did that, if you did it for every assignment, it would get, it's like, Oh, am I doing everything for data? Like that's not, that's not a good feeling. Yeah. I like too the idea of having it, over time and kind of like interspersed with other more, you know, more yeah. open projects, projects with a lot of choice. And then there was something in there that made me think about this idea of the outcome. Is the outcome the product, like the final drawings that we see and that data, you know, that's like one aspect of the outcome, but it's also the learning and the growth, which for a lot of artwork is really hard to measure and really hard to show or prove to administrators, but also just like show to the students that they are learning something, they are growing in some way. So it's a cool project for that as well, that it has kind of all of those outcomes wrapped up in there. Yeah, the the thing that opened for me in my teaching practice was starting to ask, like, when and why would you keep data? Right. Mm. I, I was always like, well, part of it was like I got kind of tired as an arch educator who took myself very seriously and worked with other art teachers to do, you know, after school events where we got together and talked about getting better at our practice, you know, doing research, doing you know online things. And then to be sitting down with someone and then just in kind of a sentence go, well, you don't really use data. So, you know, mm. you get a two instead of a five. Mm. You know, that I was just like, I can't be the only one that feels weird about that. And I genuinely don't care about those scores. Right. But even even that, I'm like, if if I as somebody who like, look, you know, Rick Binkley, who hired me, said, man, keep your principal happy in your building and you'll always have a job. Right. Don't be a Mm -hmm. flake. Get your attendance in, put grades in, love kids and make sure your principal like you'll always be employable. And I really took Mm -hmm. that to heart. And that is really true. Like 
I don't ever have remember somebody going like, well, we're considering you, but your overall team evaluation on, you know, these things, like that's never come up. I get it that it exists, Mm -hmm. but a lot of those things exist a lot more for teachers who are unfortunately kind of looked at through what their assessment scores are on, you know, ELA classes or math classes, like classes that really impact Mm. In a real direct way, funding. where people can see it, funding or ACT mm. scores. Though I, by the way, I also think art really impacts all that stuff as well. And that kids' mm-hmm. ability. I don't think that. I'm just saying that for me as an arts teacher, I never got real caught up on those scores. But mm-hmm. I thought, man, if I'm getting, if I'm being bugged by this, and I don't really like it, I bet someone else does. And so I really tried to figure out, like, hmm, how can I get data? And it really opens up the question. If you wanted to push it, you probably could get data on almost anything, right? Because mm-hmm. you could measure. In an abstract, if you were doing like work where you're that was a lot freer, you could figure out some metric to measure, right? Yeah. Rebecca um, started with the capacity to make paintings for 30 minutes, and now she's up to 45 minutes. And we know that art's generative, and so the longer you're doing it, that means the more art she's going to generate. So mm. inside of this standard, which we're trying to meet, which is students would use art to create generative practices to do this, like Rebecca has gotten better. I was able to show that I pushed Rebecca from a three to a four. You could get right. real caught up on that. What I realized was for me, that was enough because it built this really cool assignment. And then all of that impacted the way I taught other things. Cause it did let me then start thinking about like, Oh, as I'm doing these things, I can think about how data is pushing that. I just don't have to document it. And I'm grateful mm-hmm. that I don't have to, as an art teacher, document it the same way and prove that all the time. But I do think it opened up this real cool can of worms to for art teachers to pick your favorite assignment. Most of the time when you're getting evaluated, you get one announced and then just slay them with this data that they're just not expecting, you know, like, right. and, and then if it, if it matters to you, there is a way to actually show it. And it also isn't mm-hmm. the gaming of the system. It wasn't wasted, right? Like I didn't do that and go like, well, I proved I had data, but it didn't actually help me. It actually really helped me be a better draw, teacher of how to draw. Because yeah. what I saw as being that focused is I saw, yeah, I'm not as good with people who are already good at drawing. Like mm-hmm. I need to do a better job at that. And so what I did with them is then I started looking at much more sophisticated and advanced tutorials that they could find online mm. and then started pushing those students to that. I also then, the, they became my peer assistants in the sense of, right. hey, I'm just letting you know, I became a better artist when I started teaching. Mm-hmm. If you really want to get better at drawing totally. this hand, why don't you help so-and-so who you're friends with and you already know, draw this hand or even better. How about this person that you don't know and have a little awkwardness there and <laughs> you go teach them. And that, so that was, and I don't know that I would have gotten to that without that understanding. Because mm-hmm. if you just look at somebody who goes from a a four to a five or, or from really good drawer to just a slightly better drawer, you can go like, my Mike, you're, you're killing it. Like everybody got better, but they only got mm-hmm. a little bit better. Whereas mm-hmm. that kid got from a 0.5 to a 2.5 in one setting. Wow. That's, I have to admit that's real. Yeah. That's and, huge. And, and shouldn't I be doing that for that student who, you know, and maybe some of that for those art teachers out there who, are savvier than me in the sense of like how to see the, what the implication could be is like, Oh, well they're good at drawing and they're real tight. Maybe their growth needs to be like, loosen up, do Mm. some gestural things. I don't want you drawing one hand in 20 minutes. I want you drawing 25 hands. Mm. Then what you learn from that, then go back to a 30 minute full on. Oh wow. They figured out how that thumb actually should look in the way. So 
to me, there's just so many opportunities inside of that thing, which was really fun that I just never would have expected to get from what I would have perceived as like, oh, this is killing all the art part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I love that for the students that are already scoring a four or even a five, using the idea of kind of flipping the classroom, giving them more advanced videos, because that was a big challenge for me always was like, okay, I've got 30, 35 kids in one space all at the same time. How am I differentiating within this space and one of me and 35 of them? Like, how does that work? So the idea of turn them loose on YouTube, but with sort of directed, like, here's a great video for you personally, and here's a different video for you and for you, you know, just having those resources for them, which like you said, then teaches them that sort of self-reliance and, and ability to seek out resources. One thing that you just said that I always mm-hmm. love, like real-time kind of epiphanies, the idea of differentiating learning was new to me. I didn't train to be a K-12 teacher, and then I became a K-12 teacher. And then right. I, through the classes I got, I was able to take to get my alternative certification. You know, they looked at my scores and I mean, they looked at my, my transcripts and they were like, well, this counts as this, this counts as this, but you still need mm-hmm. this class, this class, this A few, right? yeah. yeah. And so, but through those, you know, I learned that differentiated learning. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Like you should do that. Right. I actually believe that just in my heart is like, we should meet people where they're at in relationship to art. Not everyone's been served mm-hmm. the same way, regardless of You know, there were plenty of kids I met at Father Ryan who had all the resources in the world who had been underserved as artists, Mm -hmm. right? So differentiating learning in arts really does cut across all sorts of boundaries that we normally wouldn't think about. Like those same kids were not underserved in math. They weren't underserved Mm. in in sciences. They were on point with all this. But in the arts, I think that there is a much more universal sense of like, you really don't know until you meet the person, Right. I, I literally talked to a, an adult today who has a four-year degree, and he said, I'm, I'm terrible at art. I have no talent. I go, You've just been underserved as an yeah. artist. That's it. Yeah. Right? You could, I could yeah, teach I you I love that draw. mindset shift. Hi, folks. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I'm jumping in to share one of the tools that I love If you're thinking about starting your own podcast or video series, Zencaster is super helpful. Zencaster is an all-in-one podcast production suite that gives you studio quality audio and video without needing all the technical know-how. It records each guest locally and then uploads crystal clear audio and video right into the suite so you have high quality raw materials to work with. You can try it out for free at zen.ai slash teachingartistpod. And if you do decide to sign up for a pro account, you get 30% off with this link and you'll be helping support this show. I love Zencaster because it records two separate tracks to make editing easier. And all I have to do is send a link to the guest. It can also handle multiple guests And there are options for audio only, recording audio while viewing video, or recording both audio and video. I usually opt for just audio so I can record in my PJs. (laughs) Now the secret's out. The link to get 30% off pro and throw some support our way 
is zen.ai slash teaching artist pod. I'll throw that link in the show notes as well so you can try Zencaster. The thing that I learned about my own studio practice from teaching mm-hmm. was to allow myself, you could call it grace, but really it's differentiating. When I'm doing printmaking and cutting rubber stamps, which I love to do, I'm not as good at that as I am at these other things. Mm-hmm. And so to differentiate what my expectations are of myself, mm-hmm. because if I go, well, I need to be as good at this and as quick as this and as inventive as this, as I am with these other materials that I'm quite quick at and, you know, gotten really good at because I've just done a ton. If I was like, I should be as good at carving rubber stamps as I am at like working with wire, which I've been doing since I was 10. And then on top of that, you stack a sculpture degree and then another sculpture degree. Like I'm really good at twisting wire. I can just build things out of wire and make armature. I'm just Mm -hmm. good at that because one, I had a proclivity for it. And then two, I got high level training, but I, through teaching, I think I taught myself to differentiate when I'm in a different spot is to go like, Oh, have different expectations for yourself. Yeah. Cause otherwise you just go like, I'm terrible at this. I'm never going to do it. And I've done that before, right. but not since I've been a teacher. Mm, since I've been a teacher, I've right. allowed myself to say, okay, in this particular moment, this is how good I am at this. And I'm just going to get, I'm going to get a little bit better at it each time. And eventually I'll get to a level of some sort of proficiency, but I'll never catch up with this other thing, but that's okay. You yeah. Know? You could even take it to the level of like scoring your work and seeing that, you know, the rubrics and that growth for yourself, the same way you do with your kids. Yeah. I'm just not anywhere near as good as I am in some parts as I am, you know, I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a hobby at best guitar player. I have to remind myself, this is not what you do for a job. Mm-hmm. You don't have a degree in this. This is something you do because you love to do it. Yeah. Relax. Don't, yeah. don't stress about that. You're not going to be good at this, right? Patty Smythe, who's married to John McEnroe, or at least at, at one point was married to John McEnroe, who has, I forget... It's interesting because there's Patty Smith and then Patty Smythe, both mm-hmm. of whom had hits in the 80s, I think. But he said something about because he has a he has a band and he said, hey, do you think we could open for you guys? And she goes, sure. We play in mixed doubles at Wimbledon. <laughs> and he was like, oh, well, that's not that's not the same. And she goes, listen, you don't get to be John McEnroe and Mick Jagger in the same lifetime. Just get over that. It's not even rational to think that you mm-hmm. could be one of the greatest tennis players of all time. And also like your hobby guitar band that you've got, that you're going to be on the same level as a professional musician. And that right. when I read that, I thought well, it was so great. One, I'm just always excited <laughs> when when those kinds of things happen, when women kind of can put that ego in its space, right? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that's adorable. But you know, like I'm a professional and I would never yeah. ask you to play mixed doubles in Wimbledon because I don't, I'm not a professional tennis player. And you're trying to act mm-hmm. like you're a professional musician, even though you play five gigs a year with your band that you can hire that makes you sound better because you have enough money to pay these musicians yeah. that are actually carrying you to make mm-hmm. you feel better than you are. Like, are you not aware of this? I just, to me it was just one of those and I also loved that he was like wrote about that and like told on himself Mm. you know that idea of going like yeah "Yeah, it's kind of embarrassing but like it is true I had to admit yeah I wasn't seeing it that way and so I have to remind myself oftentimes when I'm like delving into quilling now like I'm not going to make work like those French nuns made who spent 12 hours a day for a better part of their lives creating work with the intention that it would serve the God that they believed in, in their marrow of their bones. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to twist paper and enjoy it. And I think it's a fun thing to show kids how to have conversations in 2022 with stuff that was invented by women a long, 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 long 600 years ago. I think that's really fun. And it's really cool right. to tell, be able to tell them the story of like, yeah, women have been figuring things out for so long about how to do a lot with a little, right? And then like, I love that, but I'm just going to be playing with that. I'm never going to be masters like they were. Like the quilling that I make is not going to last 600 years and be in the music space. Mm -hmm. But I can have fun with it. I can enjoy it. I can learn a lot from it. And Mm -hmm. so to me, that's something that's been really cool about that. What I've learned from teaching in my practice is that to differentiate for myself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and And I've, I've been doing it, but I haven't noticed that until just now. But it's like, and I think that that's part of why I consider my work successful because I'm still making work. You know, mm-hmm. after I've been out of grad school since 2004 and I'm still making work. I have a busy life. I have a three hour commute each day and I work full time and then I have a part time job and I'm skateboard with my kids. I'm still making art and I feel successful. And I think part of that is because I have learned to make those adjustments about like, what are my expectations of what this practice is supposed to mean? In my life. And then I've mm-hmm. been able to place the importance on the doing, you know, Greeley Maya, who I was lucky enough to get to, to study with at the University of Memphis. He's an incredible sculptor. And in my opinion, one of kind of the great living American artists. And, you know, he says art is a verb. And I feel mm-hmm. that as, as I'm doing that, as I'm making art, I feel like I'm being successful just in the very act of it. It's just, yeah. just getting to be part of that conversation and be part of an ecosystem of of artists who are making work, you know, in this time. Yeah. And I love there's so much in there. I love this idea of letting yourself play, like letting yourself make work that, you know, you have this realization that like this, you know, this quilling work that I'm doing right now isn't necessarily going to be the end all be all of art, but it has value. And it's, you know, even if the value is that it's fun, that it informs your teaching, that it then like comes back in ways maybe you you don't realize until later to inform your practice as well, your studio practice. I love that too, just having space to to play with materials that way and ideas yeah. that way. Dr. Kathy Sohar is an educator and a real incredible woman who I met when I was working at that after school program. And she was mm. at the time on the University of Florida team who would come and evaluate our program. So she was probably hired by the Department of Education in Florida to mm. go through and say, hey, we're giving these folks this much money every year. You need to go through and evaluate the programs and make sure they're meeting all. So I met Kathy through that process. At an after school programs conference, she taught a quilling workshop. So that's how I know about mm. it. Uh, and she awesome. was enamored with, here's this thing that's been around for 600 years that women started doing because they couldn't afford the metal work for the saints in the churches. And so they started figuring out mm. how to like, approximate that metal work and fake it to look like metal. And then it lasted. And, and a lot of my interest in it was just in this joke that I had in my head because Kathy, who I loved and was really great, and we still are in contact. But in her workshop that she did, she had this thing which is really lovely as she said, what do I need to get better at in teaching this workshop? Mm-hmm. Even though we're in this after school space that isn't kind of taken by the public as serious, she was showing us what you do here is matters. I'm going to model mm-hmm. this behavior of, hey, when you do something with kids, always ask them, what is it that I 
could have done for you to have gotten this information quicker. And that's less about you than it is about the next person that comes behind you. So I'll be even better at doing this. And my joke was you should have named the workshop License to Quill or Quill Communication (laughs) because like making BC Boys references are always fun. And other than that, I thought the workshop was awesome. But there was something about that too. And she loved that. She was like, that's very, that's funny. I was looking for more serious, like, and I was like, well, it was perfect. The workshop was perfect. I didn't have anything to tell you. So I had to make this joke. Right. And, um, and, but that like locked into me, like, oh, this is, it is really interesting. Even that I made those connections between hip hop and quilling. Mm -hmm. Because that's what early hip hop would have done, which was make these unlikely connections. Mm -hmm. It reminded me too, like, oh, try to put that in your practice. So I've recently, when I'm working with students, I actually pulled, made a couple little pieces and then I often drip and layer paint and stuff. So I've started that. I'm like, I want to, I want to try this out. Like maybe that will work, but like you said, maybe it won't. And play was a huge part of my Mm. um, graduate thesis work was, well, I built a 70 foot by 24 foot tall abstract golf course. Amazing. So Uh, like it was all about play and I grew up playing sports and I thought it was interesting. You know, art was part of the first Olympics, like the original Olympics, mm. art and poetry and music got gold medals, just like everything else. And then when the modern Olympics came back, those things got dropped. But in the early Olympics, you would get a gold medal for poetry, just like you would Mm. get a gold medal for javelin. And I thought, wow, that's interesting that we lost our and then how those were like art was used to record the scabalos and all those early sculptures art was the espn for those early olympics and then we somehow lost our way and it wasn't until undergrad i met a guy named mike fink who's a really great graphic designer his wife cindy was the chair of the art department and he played baseball for the cubs and then for their triple a and then he found out that they would pay for your school the cubs would pay for your school and so he went through the art institute of chicago on the cubs And then he told me that that was hard for him because he really loved sports, but he also understood his artist friends and designer friends not really getting as interested in it as he was, mm-hmm. but he also longed for that. And so he and I chatted and then he pointed me in the direction of a couple books and a couple things. And so my whole graduate thesis was really about playing. I have hours of video that I've never gone back and looked at of me like inventing weird games in a studio space mm-hmm. with my paintings and sculptures, but there would be a ball involved. And at some point I might read it. Yeah, you'll have to look back at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I can get through the cringe of like, oh, or like, <laughs> man, I wish I was 40 pounds lighter <laughs> like I was then. Yeah. Why wasn't I outside um, showing people how skinny I was? What was I doing in the studio? uh, Playing games in the studio. I love that. Yeah. The other thing that came up for me thinking about this, you know, differentiation in your own studio practice and this idea of play is that there's so often our taste level as artists far exceeds our skill level. Yeah. (laughs) and how to kind of like how to come to terms with that how to handle that and reconcile it for yourself but then you know thinking of our students as artists too and that that's probably happening for them as well so how do we help them come to terms with this thing we can't even totally come to terms with it's it's tricky I don't know if you have any any advice there (laughs) that's a really cool I haven't quite thought about it that way but it is Mm. You know, I, I have a couple books, Art in the Age of Civil Rights, that sh- that mm. exhibit that happened. And so looking through that and seeing early Betty Starr work, you know, like mm. liking her work and being an artist is like being a basketball player and liking LeBron and then comparing right. yourself between those two. Right. 
or, mm-hmm. you know, Alma Thomas is coming to the frist here in Nashville and everyone's really excited. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, oh, well, yeah. Mike, you just said a comparison is the thief of joy. You can get right. real joyless real quick mm-hmm. if you're looking through the young, black, and beautiful. Is that the, there's a book that I have that's the, there's a couple in New York and they have their, like the collectors. They're collectors, yeah. I mean, invite folks in their home a lot and they're actually on that great. I just watched that HBO documentary about black art in the absence of light. The title comes from Theaster Gates in that documentary Mm -hmm. talking about, in particular for him as a black artist, there's always been this absence of light, meaning of resources, of, you know, Mm. energy towards his work, of, you know, excitement towards his work, of any critical kind of stuff towards his work, but he still is making work. Mm-hmm. And that he feels obligated to help create a kind of an ecosystem for other artists of color to be able to make work where they're not in that absence of light. But he would choose mm-hmm. to make work in the absence of light versus, you know, kind of a, a falseness or a false equivalent of that. And so mm-hmm. anyway, in that documentary, that guy of that collection, you know, when I'm looking through that book of the work and uh, yeah, you know, you can real quickly look at that work and go, I'll never make anything. And what's true about that is if I remind myself to differentiate is go like, yes, I will never make the work they're making, but I can make work, right? That is 2.5 on my scale where I started at a 0.5 and that's growth for me. Mm -hmm. And then if I value what I'm up to in this world, right? If I really do value art and think that it is cathartic and think that it is healthy and that Mm. it can be communicative and generative and that not only that for myself, but that I could be a model for other kids that, you know, that I work with for them to know an artist and see what I'm up to. Like if I value Mm -hmm. that, I, I do have to let that go and not worry that I'm not, you know, ever going to make work that's powerful the way Kara Walker's work's powerful, right? Like what I can do is make work that's as powerful as I can make it. And then my experience working with kids can be really powerful to them and and trust that. And that Mm -hmm. that has its own weight in relationship. And she would be the first to argue, I would think like, hey man, don't, you're doing just fine over there, right? You're working in rural Tennessee, you're working with kids, like you're making work and you have a studio mm-hmm. practice and you're doing that stuff. Don't com- connect it to me. So I think that's the part mm-hmm. that's really cool, but it is what you do bring up that really interesting point is because it, it is something that we're going to come up with, right? Like when you see that work, do you know, there's an artist, his kind of tag name is like the junk man of Africa. And he's in this book mm-hmm. called Angaza Africa. So it's like a contemporary look that was done maybe mm-hmm. 10 years ago. I got it as a gift of contemporary artists on the continent of Africa. And I like to make a lot of found object stuff. And then when I saw the work he's making, I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't know anything about painting pieces. I don't, this right. is, he was born to do this. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, he's making just such incredible social commentary. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, and, 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 and he's doing these things outside and these huge installations and there's hundreds mm-hmm. of them, you know? And so you can see that even inside of something like, and this goes back to what you're talking about, even stuff like found object sculpture, which I love is because there's such a low level of entry for like skill level of for there to be success for kids to be like, oh, I made a face out of the, the, the like the milk thing. And then this, and then it made this. Like right. there's such a wonder there that where mm-hmm. kids can go like, oh, cool. But even if something that's fairly easy to get into, and, and I think fairly easy to kind of get proficient at in the sense of being able to communicate ideas to then see someone yeah. who's like, oh, they're doing this on this just completely. They're on this Alma Thomas love. Yeah. Here, right. Like whew, it is hard to see that and go like, oh yeah, I don't know anything about anything. But I think 
what I've always been excited about is in arts, for some reason, we're like, you're, you are William Pope L or you're not an artist, mm. but, mm. but there's a whole culture of like co-ed softball teams on Wednesday nights, right? even though none of those people are ever going to pitch fast pitch softball in the Olympics, like those women do with movement on the ball at speeds of like a hundred miles per hour, but they still show up and do the best they can do. Mm-hmm. And I've always made this argument of you can be part of this conversation and part of this joy of this activity and that yeah. that can have this healthy byproduct of all kinds of things with kids mm-hmm. and people in your community. And so I have to remind, I, t- I always try to remind people is like, yeah, we don't, with sports, we don't do all or nothing. Like no one's going to be as good as these women in the WNBA. Like they're not. Right. <laughs> yeah. And to have that expectation is unrealistic. We, we don't stop having adult league basketball at the YMCA. Right. We just pour into it because it allows us to understand why those women are so good at what they, oh my God, did you see her cross? Mm-hmm. Oh, do you know how hard that is? I actually do mm-hmm. because on Wednesday I dribbled off my knee and it went out of bounds and it cost us the game. I actually get it. Right. And so I think there's uh-huh. something about that ability to be part of like, oh, I do understand why that particular piece, right, by Carrie Mae Weems, I do get why it's so good. Mm-hmm. Because I understand how hard it is to make a picture. And that one, and she's never met me, shook me to my core. Mm. I get it because I've actually tried to make something good. And so to me, I think that's yeah. the that's the gift of having a practice where the comparison actually doesn't rob you of joy. It actually makes you appreciative of just how good mm. that, you know, Basquiat was at, at making a painting, right? It makes you super aware of how good. I saw that Visa Butler show with my wife at the Art Institute mm. this summer. And, you know, the fact that I've run a few things through a sewing machine only made me even more in awe. It wasn't like, oh, I'm yeah. like the whole time I was there, I was never like, I'll never be good at this. I was delighted to live on a planet that she's living on and to be yeah. like, I mean, yeah. people always talk about in the however many million years history, I was lucky enough to be alive while Dolly Parton was on this earth. You know, mm-hmm. that's how I felt about being in that Bisa Butler show. I was like, oh my God, mm-hmm. I'm making art. I have a contemporary practice and I'm part of an ecosystem and have the ability to impact students in a time period when this woman is a master, like I, mm. that feels really lucky to me. Wow. Like I feel extremely lucky to get to be a tangential part of her ecosystem because I am there. I am there as a fan, as a viewer, right? I'm there as someone who paid to get into that museum. Like I am part of her practice, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that I work hard and spend time and try to think about being mindful of how I make work, why I make work, always mm-hmm. got to be a part of that. If, if, if I do it that way, I, I feel really grateful of just how much better she is. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I love there was something you said about like the way that any of these artists that you're mentioning, they make incredible, powerful work that relates to them and who they are and their situation. And then you can think of yourself as doing the same thing. Like you're making amazing Mike Windy work that's powerful for you and your situation and who you are and like the things you care about. And, you know, whether that's shown in the MoMA or shown in like a local library or somewhere in between, it's valuable either way. Yeah, I do think that if I believe what I say to kids, you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. Like, hey, making work and allowing people to see it and trying to communicate ideas is the real value in all of this. It doesn't have anything to do with prices Mm -hmm. or what the institution is. Yeah, I have to I have to agree with that. And that it's like that by saying that I'm not 
saying I'm making as important work as it's just like I am making important right. work in this. And then I think that that's that is that going back to that differentiating thing is like, yeah, it's not an apples to apples with me and Lisa Butler. We're just doing two very different right. things. Right. If you're differentiating that, if I'm still like kind of living in that lesson of what I've learned from my own teaching practice into my art practice is to just, yeah. As I'm there, I'm just taking anything I can back to my studio. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I need to work harder, and I need to, you know, need to, I need to think more deeply. And, and it's not saying that I'm not right. It's just like, oh yeah, there's more here. Like, I can do more. Mm-hmm. I can dive deeper into this work. I can take more risk. I can try harder things. I can take on more. I can continue to struggle my way through. This is a reminder, mm-hmm. you know, getting to see that work is a reminder of just, oh yeah. Because the the insane thing is she thinks that about that show. Yeah. She goes back and she's like, what more can I do? Yeah. She's going to that show going like, oh man, I wish I, wish I would have done this <laughs> and I'll do this different, you know, like that's, oh, that far is. Yeah. And the, and the only way I know that is because the work's so good. So there's no way she's not asking right. questions. Or something. But then who, you have to think too, who's looking at your work that way? Mm-hmm. Like we're in this you know, where, where are you in there? Is there somebody who's seeing your work and being like, Oh my God, that's so amazing. I wish I was like, you know, they're comparing themselves to you and having this realization then that like you're, you're comparing yourself to somebody else. And it's sort of this never ending. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing that's really inspiring, like it helps me to think of the inspiration that you get from looking at artists and for Bisa Butler, especially knowing that she was teaching just like we are, like she was teaching and making this work and, you know, working her ass off (laughs) to create incredible artwork and kind of move up until she got to a point where she could stop teaching. And not that, you know, that's sort of the the end goal. Maybe it is for some people, but you know, like you said, teaching is, is so important and something you wouldn't even necessarily want to stop. But just knowing that there's people like her who did both things and were in the same kind of like juggle and hustle that we're in and have created incredible work like that. Yeah, you've probably noticed this too. I think that we, one, I think that the internet has allowed us to know more about people. But there was a long time when I was looking at like kind of quote the canon of people and it was the rare person that taught anything besides university level who I was then looking at in a textbook. And I remember, I think it may have been Dennis Oppenheim and I just remember seeing this little thing that he taught like middle school school. I was like, what? Wow. Like not even just like a state school, you know, university school professor, you know, like who's in a textbook, Mm. like he taught middle school. But I think now more and more, there are artists that just have such a variety who are kind of making their way as artists inside of whatever kind of financial ecosystem they're finding success in that have done all sorts of different from after school programs to artists in residency programs, or maybe they're teaching just summer classes with kids. And I think that the other part of that is there's just more and more of those opportunities and used to for artists that was like you either taught college or you taught high school. And so now I think there's right. two things there. One, we know more about people, but also I think there's more opportunities like in Nashville, my friend Jackie, works at Belmont Watkins and does a community education program. And I've been able to steer some artists her way who are getting paid to do like two day or one day workshops. Right. And so those things just probably didn't exist 30 years ago or yeah. you would have heard more about them. But I do remember part of the myth was, you know, you're not ever going to be successful as an artist if you, you talk. Nobody, there's no, there's nobody that teaches kindergarten, right? Right. Then I read Ruth Sinel's book this summer, the, the one that's on mm. the Chronicle um, book that's, and that just broke my brain. That somebody who, yeah. because of racism, was not allowed to get her teaching license 
has a important high school in California named after her. That's and that Wild. she just kept pushing, going like, no, 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 no. Like, if kids can be involved, my goal is to get kids involved. And that she kind of is responsible for artists in schools programs, like for the most part. Like that she was one of Oof. the early people that was driving that idea that we now think is like second nature, and almost any good grant has some version of that connected to. That that mm. woman did that. That's wild Incredible. to me, and just so valuable. And then to know like. And she taught little kids her whole life. That was her deal. She worked with, she did artists yeah. in schools programs, school gardens. And she did all of these things that the myth that I grew up in was like, that wasn't the stuff that you would do that would position you well to get this thing. Mm. It's so cool yeah. to kind of understand like, oh no, I'm totally happy to be working in the Ruth Asawa continuum of being an mm. artist, working with kids. Like if I'm in any way, shape or form ever connected to that woman, I'm going to feel pretty good about myself, right? Yeah. Put that on my gravestone, right? Like he he was working in the school of that idea of working in your community, working with students, regardless. I say K through nursing home is who I like to teach, right? Like yeah. that idea of like, right. I'm interested in anyone who's interested. If I can teach you something, like I get really excited about that idea. Mm. And that, that that's what she was up to as well. And then just made, talk about feeling less than when you see work. Oh, it's just so good. Yeah. It's so Amazing good. Amazing work. And just wasn't thought about for so long. But man, it's stunning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I would love to get into our wrap up questions. Okay. You probably know what's coming. Yep. <laughs> so the one that I love that's just really broad, and that's why I love it. What are you curious about? Uh, a million things. Um, you know, right. I'm a dad, I have a, a teenage son, and we skate together. And so, you know, I have a, a constant curiosity towards, uh, I've never been a dad before, right? Like this is all happening. And I'm learning in real time, I have a dad. Yeah, and I'm grateful. And um, I have a, a dad and a father in law who I've, who I've known since I was little. And I have a lot of men in my life who are fathers and were father figures to me. So I have a ton of really positive information to draw from. But that's a constant curiosity mm -hmm. about like, well, what do I take of that? What do I throw out of that? Right? Like right. What, what recipe, how, what stew am I making? Mm -hmm. I've been writing a lot, both poetry, but also making songs as a kind of a hobby mm -hmm. of mine. And so yeah. that's something I'm really curious about. And then just professionally, I'm always, I try to pick something each year to I'm 46, soon to be 47. And I'm getting older every year. And the kids are, I'm, I'm older than the seniors. I'm a year older than seniors every year, if that makes sense. Right. And so yeah, I try like to, they're I'm, not aging. Correct. Right. <laughs> and so one of the things that especially working now in a K-12 environment with, with technologies, I try to pick something each year to at least kind of stretch. I, I tell my son, I'm never going to keep up, but I can make sure that I'm not getting super far behind. So in the last couple of years, I've gotten really into this makey-makey and doing code, coding oh, cool. stuff and kind of doing, figuring out art in which I can kind of, one, still connect with kids and do really cool mm -hmm. things that's important for them with kind of emerging fields. And then the, the other thing that just feeds into my own kind of practice with kind of performance pieces that I do that are connected to technology. So I'm, yeah, I'm curious great. about lots of things. Yeah. But I love how that the tech can feed both teaching and art making. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And totally relate to that. You're like, I'm getting older and, and the kids aren't like, what's happening here? I taught, um, I took a picture with him. So my last year at Father Ryan, I taught the last kid that I'll ever teach that September 11th was something that happened in his lifetime. Ah, yeah. So every year after, so from 2000, so 
2020, with a couple limited exceptions, you know, there were no seniors that I taught who were alive when September 11th happened. Right. So the idea that something that you and I just remember, like that's in our head, that that would become mm-hmm. a historical event to someone is just a, a weird phenomenon for me personally. It is. So, or the, was- like, I know, I, I think Cassie Stevens posted about this recently, that kids are starting to say like, oh, you were born in the 19s, the 1900s. <laughs> what <laughs> that that's wild to me too that yeah talk about somebody like be, yeah i guess i was but <laughs> talk about somebody to be proud of like getting to see her practice is so cool I'm, i love it so much that she's from i my friend's mom works with her um, oh cool and she's like she really is that oh. awesome you know and i'm like oh i know she's like no no, no it's not just on the videos like she really is that awesome yeah like, she's awesome yeah. my my wife showed me a TikTok. She's like, hey, check this out. And I was like, oh, cool. You're following Cassie Stevens. And she's like, how do you know who Cassie Stevens is? <laughs> she's an art teacher in Tennessee. And she's like, oh, she's from Tennessee. And I'm like, yeah. I just think that that's so cool that like people are following her from all that just don't know that she's, they just I have no idea. Yeah. yeah. And that she's, she's a legitimate, <laughs> her podcast is so good. She tells a story on her podcast. that was one of my favorite art stories. If you haven't heard her podcast, go back and listen to it. I don't, I've heard a lot of it. I don't know if I listened to everyone, so yeah. I should go back. <laughs> it's just about a little boy that she can't hear. She isn't know she's breaking through with him and she goes to give him a mm. high five and he skips the high five and just smacks her on the butt. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just like, oh, okay. God. like what about, I don't know what to do here. Like I had everything planned out for like what was supposed to happen except for that. Uh, right. <laughs> unforeseen circumstance yeah. it's just, it just hilarious and just the way she told it on uh, her stuff she's just it's really interesting like her ability to kind of move to that you know to me she's just working in the vein of like 70s steve martin the way she moves her body yeah. like all that stuff is just in that she's such a good physical comedian right yeah such a performer but in that podcast she really switches to just the nuts and bolts of like oh i know how to run a classroom mm-hmm. and i know the ins and outs of like what that means and i can help you skip some real important steps if you want to skip to just I, I just think that it's cool just how effortlessness that comes through when she's doing those videos like just how hard it is to get to that I just think it's so cool that she that she, again just to get to be anywhere near working in that environment I just think it's cool that there's someone from Tennessee that people get excited about, like who's an art educator right like her job yeah. is to teach little kids art and she's famous I think that's so lovely right. I think that's such a lovely It is thing. really cool. <laughs> okay, next, just fun question. What is your favorite food? The first thing that pops into my oh, head yeah. is like uh, tacos in any version. Hard mm-hmm. shell, soft shell. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Osprey tacos in uh, mm. St. Augustine, Florida are as good as anywhere in the mm. world. Yeah, I feel like... I need to, at some point, make a chart of this. I feel like 50%, maybe more, of people that I speak to answer with tacos. <laughs> like Tacos is the number one food for art educators. Is that true? <laughs> According to my yeah, data. Second place for me as like someone who really loves food is every other food. Just tied for second place. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like, I can't answer this question. <laughs> our, right now, Wendy and I, we always joke because she... This first sign that it starts to get cold, she'll make it chilly. Mm-hmm. And then that lasts through March and I call it soup season. And it's just, yeah, she just makes such good. That's her. She loves cooking and loves feeding folks. And she just starts with this big crowd and she just makes soup. And it's just my favorite mm-hmm. thing. Soup season. Love that. 
Oh, thank you so much. I want to give a space for you to thank anybody or like give a shout out if you want to. Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, my lovely wife, she and I have been married. It'll be 26 years this summer. And so that's where the Mike Wendy comes from. Her first name is Wendy with an I, not like Wendy, W-E-N-D-Y, which was invented from Peter Pan. That's the first time someone was named Wendy was Wendy and Peter Pan. Um, I found that out through my friend Wendy down in St. Augustine. She's like, yeah, it's named after Wendy, like all the other Wendy's from Peter Pan. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, yeah, that, that was an invention. And so but, so Wendy's first name, lowercase and conjoined with mine, is like a little love note to her. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she's been amazing. And my son Joey is awesome. And really just the, you know, kind of Nashville and Middle Tennessee art community that I get to be part of. Anywhere from Sisyphon, Kudavong, who teaches over at MTSU, who I've become friends with, to Omari Booker, who's working both in Nashville and L.A. You know, it's just exciting to get to be living in Nashville right now. The art community that exists in Nashville is just really wonderful. I get to do a project through the Educators Cooperative, which I'm part of. So it's a group of public, private, and charter school teachers. And so we've started the Culture Corner. So I facilitate a conversation once a month with Black artists. And that series has just been really, really powerful to get to be part of for folks to, one, kind of take us up and feel comfortable, you know, coming into a space that we're trying to create for teachers to see that, you know, many of whom are working with kids of color to get to meet living artists, directors, poets, designers, dancers has been really exciting. And we've, you know, we feel like we're putting together one of the best speaker series around. And if you look at, you know, the folks that we've featured, you know, uh, my friend David John Walker, he and I have really interesting relationship. We just kind of connected as adults, but we both played for the same basketball coach in high school, but 10 years (laughs) apart, he's younger than I am. We have all these things, but David just went, he was one of our speakers and he just stopped what he was doing as a full tenured professor and went back to school, but at Yale in their design program. Wow. And so, so anyway, it's just really, for me, it's a huge honor to just get to be really like living and working around these incredible artists in Nashville. And then through that particular program, getting to be part of conversations, you know, with them through that channel with Educators Cooperative with creative individuals is just giant. So if those those conversations are free and open to anybody to come to. So if I could shout one thing out, it would probably be just getting to kind of connect with that space. And then just all the artists I'm lucky enough to get to be around in Nashville. Yeah. And where can, if people want to come to the speaker series, where can they find, is there a website or would you want to share the Instagram for that, for Educators Cooperative? Yeah, it's educators underscore cooperative. Mm-hmm. and cooperative spelled out. Yeah, and, and I'll then, share that too. Yeah, and then from there, there's the link tree and you can go to the Collaborates calls and there's just a, a Zoom channel and then you just log on. And right. it's, it's a hard stop at eight. You know, it's from seven to eight Central Standard Time. And nice. it's been really, Herberto Palacio was, and I maybe didn't say his last name right. Um, I know him as Eddie. He was in the graduate program at Watkins Belmont in the program that my friend Jody Hayes was part of. And he's Mm -hmm. doing really incredible work about black male romance and this, how there's this dearth of even research about touch and relationship that's not sexual amongst black men. Right. His work is kind of connecting those kinds of dots for him as someone who was curious about that. You know, we had him on in January 
and you know, it was just, it's fantastic to kind of be able to position someone who's making paintings and making digital work and who's doing his PhD about this topic that is so specific to him from a personal level. But then when all those teachers are on the call, it's universal because they're like, oh yeah, I work with kids who struggle with all these kinds of ideas about becoming men and women in this world. And, Mm. you know, you'd ask me on this conversation coming in what my pronouns were. Like all of us teachers, as you pointed out, no one gives you a, a list at the beginning of your career of like, hey, here are all the social emotional things you need to pay attention to in relationship to how to make a kid feel comfortable in your classroom. Right. Right. And here are yeah. all the right ways to do that. And here are all the ways that you should spend time doing it. Like you just get lucky enough to, be, to get inserted into a culture that that school has. And that school has a culture. The school is connected to other cultural things. Who are the people that are coming to that building? What are their kind of uppercase cultural things that they're part. It's just, you know, so again, like that is just so cool to, to be able to have those folks on and then have some of that stuff get unpacked and go like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's wow. So yeah, so those calls are, again, they're free. They're once a month on Thursdays. I usually start the conversation. I'll ask a question and from there, people just start asking questions and it becomes a real kind of conversation, which is really nice. Yeah, that's awesome to have that sort of interactive aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then what are your links? Like where can people find you and connect with you online? So my visual artwork is Mike Wendy Art, M-I-K-E-W-I-N-D-Y Art. Um, That's on Instagram. And then I also have Tina Here on Instagram, which is like a sound art kind of public project I'm working on. And it's like T-E-N-N-E. And then instead of the word C, it's here. So I'm trying to play with that idea. Uh Instead of Tennessee, it's Tennessee here. And then, and that you can link to that from, from Mike Wendy. And then if you want to see, I have a bunch and I can send them to you, but I I also have Mount Pleasant Arts, which is much more about the educational stuff that I'm doing through my role here as the kids on stage art director down in Mount Pleasant. And then if you want to see a bunch of kids and me, pictures of me and my son skateboarding, it's at Cowboy conceptual um, on awesome yeah, so. uh, well yes you can send me all the links and I will share them so anybody listening those will be in the show notes you can find all the links thank you so much Mike this has been great just I feel like we could just keep going but there's so much to talk about I'm sitting here in this building and you know it's like I didn't say you know Dr. Ryan Jackson, who's my boss, and I'm not just saying this because my boss, but you know, he's an educator that I've gotten to work under under two different schools. One in Nashville, mm. Tennessee. It's near downtown Nashville, and then here, and he's just a champion of what I'm up to. You know, I run a little free mm. skate shop here in the building that gives out awesome. skateboards, and he's the principal. And you, you could real quickly, you without even having to to think about it, could start telling me all the reasons why you shouldn't be giving skateboards away in the building. Right? You go like, well, if, what if a kid got hurt, or what if mm. And he doesn't see any of it, right? He's like, hey, man, set some really nice parameters, right? Don't mm-hmm. skate on property. Don't skate in the building. Take the skateboard. Right. Take it home. Get yourself a helmet, right? And and so the idea of, you know, when we were at Maplewood, we did a project with drones. And he was really excited about that. Kids made paintings with drones. You know, getting to work with someone who is an administrator who truly values art, not just because steam's like a cool thing to say, to right. work with someone who really believes positioning kids to be creative has a true power to it, regardless if they're in our welding program or HVAC program, or if they're going to, you know, work in the ag field, or if they're going to go to a four-year program like that, he believes that art is important. It's just, it's gigantic, right? Because yeah. I know so many art Huge. educators that don't have that, you know, essentially giant permissions that 
right? Mm-hmm. Which he's just like, yeah, man, yeah, uh, that, you can totally like that's art's the thing, uh, you know. So my role as an arts director, I get to work as this. We're doing a plant science classroom, and I'm going to buy a a raku kiln because the class is coded both as agriculture and horticulture, and we're going to make raku pots and grow bonsai trees. So I'm going to get to work with the ag teacher who doesn't know how to do that. But like as the arts director, I'm going to get to push into her classroom and help her figure out a way to like always include this kind of ancient Japanese tradition of making things, but actually doing it away like with a raku kiln. And so to have a boss that goes like, yeah, man, that sounds like a great idea. Because almost everyone else would go, what does that have anything to do with ag or horticulture? Right. And he immediately goes like, oh, yeah, that's that's yep. great, right? We're also going to buy little sensors because I read this article about how plants are emitting sounds, even if we don't hear them Ooh, at yeah. all times. They're always saying something. And so we're going to clip those to those plants, make those recordings, and then play those back to plants as kind of like <laughs> both an kind of art project, but also... so. To have an administrator that allows me to, there, yeah, there are certain things where he's like, Mike, we need to get this done, this done, this done, this one, and we need to get them done this way because this is what's happening. But then on this other side for him to go like, man, go dream, do your mm-hmm. thing, do that art thing that always yields something really interesting that he can then latch on to, you know, like the little free skate shop. You know, he's just like, what are you mm-hmm. up to? And I'm like, man, I'm just giving boards away. I get them from the skate park. He's like, cool. And then slowly mm-hmm. he came in, he saw kids building boards last week and he's like, oh man, you're on to something. This is great. I can't overstate how that I understand because I've been in buildings before where even as the art teacher in the building, I haven't had the kind of support from the administrators. Uh, Well, may we all have someone who tells us (laughs) go dream. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's amazing. Uh, Thank you. Of course. I really appreciate it. I'm really honored and and that you asked me to be on. So I really. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.